Before we get to this week's episode, I have some exciting news. We just wrapped up our summer issue of Digiday Magazine. This is only available to Digiday Plus subscribers along with unlimited access to our content online. Um, Otherwise, you'll only be able to read four articles a month, and that's not nearly enough. Uh, But to get you over the line, I have a special discount code for you. Um, And you don't want to miss it. It's a great deal. To subscribe right now for three months, it is just $49. Um, go to digiday.com slash subscribe and enter the code intro at checkout and you can check out uh, Digiday Plus for a mere $49 for three months and then I hope you renew um, and get an annual subscription. Now on to the episode. Millie Tran is the newly minted deputy off-platform editor at the New York Times, carving out a new role in which she's focused on translating the Times off its owned properties. I'm Brian Marcy, and this is the Digiday Podcast. On this week's episode, Millie and I discuss how she found her own career lane and what exactly an off-platform editor does anyway. We also discuss how working in a big organization like the Times helps build out specialized skills versus doing a whole lot of everything in smaller organizations and much, much more. Hope you enjoy the episode. Millie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So you are deputy off-platform editor. Explain what the hell that is. I'm always happy, and I know I've taken the right job when I have to explain what it is. (laughs) The easiest way to describe what off-platform is is to tell you what on-platform is at the New York Times, which is anything that is owned and operated. So our homepage, app, push alerts, email um, are on-platform. So off-platform is everywhere you may encounter the Times that is not those things. So that's social, search, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can consider Apple News, LinkedIn. Search. Are podcasts off-platform? Technically, but... Um, this the, is where it gets the, messy. I know. This is where it gets messy, <laughs> and I, I don't want to have to get into explaining... The New York Times the, org chart? Yes, but basically I oversee mostly social okay, and so, kind of new distribution platforms. So this is not like a social media job? I think it is part of that, and it's changing and shifting because I think... I have. I feel like I have two goals in this role. One is coverage base, which is understanding signals um, from external sources to inform our editorial decisions, and then two is distribution. Right? It's making sure we're aligning coverage lines with specific audiences on specific platforms. So we're shifting to that. Um, I think there was this period of, I guess, quote unquote, social, where we kind of just put everything everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think we're becoming much more intentional and specific about that. So what, give me like a typical day. Like, What do you do? A typical day. Um, so I would say I'm kind of operating on three levels, right? Which is one, uh, sometimes I'm literally running our accounts, getting my hands dirty. Two would be managing our team of social editors globally and then so wait like let me just back up yeah who's on the team so our team is made up of about a dozen social editors globally um who are all kind of running our accounts working with editors and journalists on kind of big packages and features and doing all the smart things they do so the, the kind of the micro to macro that I'm working on is one, literally running the accounts, two, managing our team, and three, kind of shaping our strategic vision for whatever we do next. So how did you come into this role? You, you had done a, a presentation about uh, like your career path, and I want to get into just the overall environment, um, but like 
how you got into this role, I think, is, is kind of interesting because we have a lot of listeners who are at various stages of their careers, um, and there's a lot of different paths they can take. Explain your path. So I should say I've been at the Times for about, I keep saying a year and a half, but it's about two years now. Um, I was most recently and was hired to be uh, the global growth editor, which was a new position uh, at the Times. And I recently started this role as deputy off-platform editor in February. And the kind of shift from global growth editor, which I can also explain to this, was a lot about moving from kind of the strategy to execution and operations and programming. I think it's important to have both, but I'll, I'll back up a little bit more too and talk about the presentation a bit. Um, the presentation is, it's very pink. It it's came, millennial pink. It's millennial pink. Um, it came out of my time doing the Pointer Women's Digital Leadership Program, and we had to make kind of a plan for what we do afterward. And, you know, one thing led to another. I shared it with a few people afterwards. And one of my now colleagues, Ari, who's our um, director of comms at the Times, asked if, asked if she could share it publicly. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, it's a little personal. It's about my career path. <laughs> I mean, it's a PowerPoint. But it can't sure, be that I know. It's, PowerPoint. <laughs> it's a slideshow. So she shared it and it kind of took on a life of its own. But the, the contents of it are basically the first half is all about kind of my career in media so far, which has spanned a lot of different media companies. I started at Atlantic Media um, as a fellow, moved over to National Journal, which is their political magazine. Mm-hmm. I was on the marketing and business side, and I was actually doing a lot of design too. So it was this kind of hodgepodge. And then I moved to the Council on Foreign Relations because I really miss being in the editorial flow. So that's where I produced um, that podcast I was telling you about. It was called The World Next Week. And this was before podcasts were actually right. cool. You're early. I, I missed it. I missed the wave, I'm sorry to say. From there, I went to join the American Press Institute, which is a journalism think tank. It was to help kind of rebuild it from scratch. And then from there, I, I moved to BuzzFeed News to help launch the app because I had started API's newsletter and mm-hmm. wrote that daily. And Stacey Marie Ishmael, who was hired to start the BuzzFeed News app, read it and wanted um, the BuzzFeed News app to have a strong email component. So from there, I, I moved within BuzzFeed to start this new team called Global Adaptation which is all about translating and adapting the best of BuzzFeed uh, across its 11 international editions at the time. Um, And then that's how I got to the New York Times as global growth editor. But, you know, saying that all now, it just sounds... My God, you sound like you're ready to retire. (laughs) I am Uh. ready to retire. Can I retire? (laughs) This is my official retirement. (laughs) Um, But, you know, the, the main thread in all of that is... You know, I I kind of I'm obsessed with news, how people get their news. I really learned that at the American Press Institute. My the foundation of all of this is about news and media. Um, I didn't study journalism. I went to UCLA. We didn't have a journalism program, so I actually studied global studies and geography. But I worked at the Daily Bruin, which is a great student newspaper. And then you know, it, it's about my obsession with media, the foundation in media, and I think having kind of these different perspectives and experiences how, on how to approach media, whether that's from the marketing side, the business side, 
the design and user experience, the research, the data, the right. product and app side. Well, that's what it's all, it's product oriented. That's yeah. what I want to get at. Because there's a lot of different yeah. paths in media these mm-hmm. days, particularly as product becomes way more yep. important. Um, and yes, I mean, the core of it is always the day-to-day reporting. Um, but at the same time, um, there are these roles that require a lot of different skill sets. Yes. It seems like you've sort of identified having these skills in different pockets and and being able to construct your own sort of job within that product world. Yeah, and I, I would say like two things, right? Most job descriptions are a best guess at what someone needs yeah, and the I problem they're trying to describe, right? Or trying to solve. So I, you know, one trick with job descriptions when you see them is to try to reverse engineer and try to figure out the problem this person is actually trying to solve by hiring this role and seeing how you are uniquely most qualified or most able to solve it based on your skills mm-hmm. and experience. Yeah. But you also, I think with job descriptions, you can close yourself off to, to good candidates if you're just trying to you know, find this person is just doing this, but you have a bunch of different needs. And so it's yeah. usually good to have people write their own job descriptions. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a big fan of cover letters, a good cover letter. Um, and really? I thought that was a dying art. No, you know, if you can't write a good cover letter, like, why bother? <laughs> um, but, you know, being able to write a good cover letter and trying to really understand how someone thinks and the experiences that they bring to a role and how they might execute on that is really important. And that's hard to, it's hard to understand. So in your presentation, you talked about mentorship versus sponsorship. Um, and you said that high potential women are, are over mentored, um, but under sponsored. Explain that. So I, I should say that quote is attributed to this Harvard Business Review article, yeah. not me. But what that point is getting at is that Mentorship, as it's defined in this article, is all about, you know, giving advice and saying, helping people solve problems and kind of navigating a place or a situation, whereas sponsorship is much more direct action on someone's career. So that's like mentioning their names for big projects, visible projects, praising their work, basically being able to actually make movements in their career um, in actionable and very tangible ways versus just like let me help you through this or let me show you how to navigate this place Mm -hmm. or problem. What was the big difference going from a place like BuzzFeed to the New York Times? Or was there not a big difference? It's so funny. I used to get this question a lot more when I first started at the Times. And, you know, my answer then... It was only a year and a half ago. I know. Well, you know, (laughs) time and digital media is... I'm ready for retirement, remember? I know. (laughs) Um, So my answer then, and it's still quite similar now is that BuzzFeed and the Times are really great at quite different things and want to kind of the best from one another. Um, I would say BuzzFeed is really great at executing. Um, They move fast. They launch things. They learn quickly. They pivot. The, The flip side to that is that that makes you really good at like short to medium term, right? Um, Whereas the Times, I think, is so good at kind of long-term strategic planning, but kind of slower to execute, but very well, thoughtful when they do. It's a yeah, larger organization. It's, it's a larger organization. Yeah. So the Times is about I think four to five thousand people total, and I think BuzzFeed maybe maybe two or three thousand. I I don't remember the mm-hmm. most updated numbers. Um, but you know, it's it's easy to start things. I've always started things, built things. It's a much different skill set to go into a bigger legacy organization and try to shift things and change things because 
it requires a perseverance in a different way and a grittiness and yeah. kind of patience for the long game. Um, I've realized that culture change is just, it's just, it's truly the day-to-day work um, and not being discouraged when you mm-hmm. when it can feel like you take two steps forward to take one step back. So what is your, I don't want to say advice, but tips for, for people navigating their careers within larger organizations like that? I mean, because there's upsides and downsides. I think in, in smaller organizations, you can take on like bigger roles, bigger projects, and like, totally. there's just, there's so many needs around that like f- those who are proactive can get ahead pretty quickly. It's a little different when you're in a larger organization, I'm guessing. Totally. Um, you know, I think I think about this a lot because I don't think I would have learned as much as fast anywhere else. Um, BuzzFeed let me, like, took a chance on me to start and run this global team um, when I had not no experience, but little experience. Um, I don't think I would have had that opportunity anywhere else. Um, so it gave me this really gave me a lot of runway to play and learn quickly. At the times, it, it's more about specialization and being uniquely good at like a specific and f- defined area. Um, so I would say, you know, there are kind of two paths. I think people think a lot about like, should I go to a smaller organization where I can do more mm-hmm. or should I go to a bigger organization and learn a specific skill, right? I, th- I think those are kind of the rough cuts of both. And I think if you don't know what it is you want to do, like I I didn't know what I really wanted to do. I thought I wanted to be a publisher at Mm -hmm. some point. And even just the idea and definition of a publisher has changed so much in the last decade or so. So I opted to kind of go to a bunch of small, medium-sized places where I could do a little bit of everything and kind of learn. You you want to get to learning faster, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to kind of rule out things. I realized I didn't want to be exclusively on the marketing or business side. I realized I didn't want to be a designer by trade because nothing is more terrifying than looking at like a blank screen and having to like design something. So, you know, you you kind of get through all of that quickly. I think on the flip side, if you know, like, I want to be a product manager, you should go where you can learn that skill set from the best product managers. So Mm -hmm. you're, you're probably more inclined to go somewhere like, I don't know, Google, where that practice has been iterated on and kind of refined over many years. I don't think it's uh, so cut and dry, though, because I think you can come in um, to a big organization and also learn a lot and have a kind of wide aperture into how it works and how it runs. But that's that's kind of how I did it. Okay, so now you're you you've landed in this this off platform role. Mm-hmm. It's not social media. It's not audience development. It's not product. It's something different. Yes. So I'm officially based in the newsroom. Mm-hmm. We have very smart people uh, deciding whether we should pursue different or be on different platforms for business and like company reasons. Like I said, my goal is much more coverage and distribution oriented. So coverage, like, again, what signals can we take in? Um, how do we... One, how do we get those signals? There are a lot of garbage signals. How do we figure out what's actually important? How do we communicate that? What do we do with it? Making a decision on it. Um, And then, like I said, distribution. So aligning and being much more intentional and strategic about how we reach people Mm -hmm. um, versus kind of putting everything everywhere. With the mission of making the web a first-class platform that delivers results, Pantheon is the world's 
best web ops platform, one that gives superpowers to web teams, allowing them to take control of their websites and work in an agile fashion to win in the dynamic digital world. With Pantheon, marketers and developers deliver results by iterating quickly, learning and experimenting with their websites in the same way they do with virtually every other tool in their MarTech and development stacks. Pantheon powers over 285,000 sites, and it is trusted by thousands of marketing and development teams around the world. Learn why at pantheon.io slash digiday. That is pantheon.io slash digiday. How important is, is, I mean, the overall business goal of the times in the last like five years, say, has changed quite a bit because now it's squarely focused on getting people to pay you money. Um, whereas these off-platform, and that's on-platform, right? I mean, there's a little bit off-platform, but it's mostly on-platform. Mm-hmm. Um, so how much does that inform what you do day-to-day? Um, I, you know, I don't have to think about it top of mind, which is good because I think when you are in a big company, you have to focus and you have to kind of prioritize ruthlessly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would like to think about all of those. I, I know that like in the back of my head. And I think it's also important to connect those larger company goals to the things you do every day. Um, but the things I focus on every day is how do we get our, how do we tell our best stories on all these platforms? Um, and how do we drive the news of the day, right? Um, so it, it, it's less about, I, I, I know I'm aware of the goals, yeah. but I don't have to execute on them every day. So. That's that's kind of nice. Okay, so you sort of wake up and you think, how can we be telling the best stories on these various platforms? Mm-hmm. And, and that is everywhere from, what, Facebook to YouTube to Twitter to Twitch? I don't even know. <laughs> so, TikTok? You know, it, it's funny. I, I think when you um, talk about off-platform, everyone wants kind of a list of all the platforms you're on. And I think eventually like we'll we'll get there but it's less about the volume or like the number of platforms you're on and much more about again like coverage lines and what types of people are where um we had this they're they're kind of like three points i think about all the time um one is that it's a pivotal point in kind of social media and platforms right now um two which is people are changing their behaviors on these platforms and how might we respond to that and anticipate that? And then three is there are lots lots of garbage signals out there, right? Um, So I I can explain a little bit how those three things connect. The first one about kind of it being a pivotal point in social media and platforms right now. If you were only to read the news about Facebook and platforms, you would think like everyone is off and like, deleting their Facebook accounts. Mm-hmm. I was just reading this Pew uh, survey from earlier this year, it was 2019, and it, I, I was surprised to see that the share of US adults who say they use certain um, online platforms or apps is statistically unchanged from where it stood in early 2018. So, you know, I think- th- So how much of your job is Facebook? It's, it's a lot of it right now, but I think that is shifting. And one of the things I'm working on is the broader goal is, again, coverage specific audience platforms. Another thing I'm thinking about is how much time we spend on each platform given the mm-hmm. output, right? Facebook still drives a lot of our off-platform 
referrals. Um, so it's an important source. We but is that the overall goal? Like, what is your KPI? I know, like, tell the best stories. It means to get traffic back from these platforms. Yeah, it, it you know, it's to get traffic back because, you know, there, so there are certain stories that I think are best experienced and read or viewed or whatever on the times. Um, mm-hmm. But we also want to, you know, have a conversation. I know that sounds so like it's okay. 2012 maybe. Might be. Um, but, but we still have a large audience there. And, you know, that question actually reminds me of this other piece I read. Um, I know I'm going to say his name wrong, but Yancey Strickler, who is one of the co-founders of uh, Kickstarter, he had this piece about, it's called the like dark forest theory of media right now. And there's a lot that has been written about how behavior on specific platforms have gone from these open spaces to mm-hmm. much more closed spaces, closed and small spaces. So an example of that is people moving from just posting on like their Facebook timeline to moving to groups or moving to uh, yeah, private small, sharing. Yeah, seems pri- private like sharing a, a, and like private trend. experiences. Right. I think there's no doubt that that's happening. I think. I'm surprised we don't see it in the, in the data just yet, um, but I I think that's one we can for sure anticipate and work around. I mean, Facebook finally made the change to say it was emphasizing groups, for example. But but the more interesting part to me is less that like these things are happening because we we kind of know that intuitively. If you if you're like a media watcher, you mm-hmm. you kind of know this, right? a lot more of the sharing behavior is moving to private channels. But what's interesting to me is what happens to these pub- like big public places, right? What happens when, say, you, you asked how much time we spend on Facebook and like what's a KPI? What happens if we just totally pull out? What if all news publishers, like legitimate fact-based publishers pull out of Facebook, what's left? And how do we feel about that? I, I don't know the answer, um, and I think about that for multiple yeah. platforms. So you're not going to announce a New York Times <laughs> Facebook boycott? That is way above my pay grade. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, just wondering. When it comes to the garbage signals you talked about, what is that? Because, I mean, there's a lot of data out there, um, but not all the, the data is good, and, and sometimes you can follow the wrong data into bad places. Yes. So... You know, I think after uh, the 2016 election, we learned this, that a lot of signals are bad. And, you know, I I just went through this hiring process to hire some people on our team. And one of the things I really emphasize is hiring editors for social media roles. I think Mm -hmm. everyone just immediately looks to whether you've been a social media editor. And I think it's really important to... Like the foundation of that role is about being a good editor with excellent news judgment. And then on top of that, you have experience with different platforms or like mm-hmm. understand the audiences and how those platforms work. But the core but is the core editorial. Is, yes, the core is editorial. The core is news judgment. The core this is, is a new kind of role. I mean, usually you talk about editor, you think about reporting or you think about like moving copy around. Yeah, no, this is, this is about, you know, I think this is why... We are in this place of like misinformation and disinformation, right? Because a lot of these signals are garbage, and the pro- like the role of your of an editor, I think, in this day and age, mm-hmm. is to understand those signals, apply news judgment to it based on wherever, what or whatever organizations you might work for, and say like this is worth pursuing, like we can ignore this, this is whatever. 
And to to expand a little bit on what I mean by garbage signals, it's that, you know, it used to be that if you looked at a profile of an account, you can say like, oh, this person like has a profile pic and a link Mm -hmm. or a short bio must be real. Now it's so easy to fake those that you, you know, you have to be able to be a discerning editor or, you know, a discerning consumer to say mm-hmm. that that does not, it, realness is easy to fake, essentially. Right. Um, so let me ask you this then from a mm-hmm. big picture perspective. Then why are these platforms actually good places to tell, um, you know, serious journalistic stories when they're filled with garbage signals, misinformation, disinformation, junk news? Um, and I could go on. Like, why even, like you said, like, why are these actually good places for the New York Times to be telling their stories and furthering their mission? So, all of that is true. But, but the people are there. Y- yeah. So, it's like be, there's be, no choice. No, because multiple things can be true at once, right? So, all of that is true, but also people are spending more of their time, like their days, on their phones, computers, digital media. Um, I think the latest Kleiner Perkins, Mary Meeker's internet report had people, US adults spend like almost six hours on their phone or computer or any other connected device in a day. And, you know, I think- That's screen time updates. Yes, the most I know, it, part it of truly week. is. I, I try to look at it, I try to be better, I ignore the limit, it's yeah. fine. But yeah, multiple things can be true at once and I think, no matter how many people are quote unquote leaving, again, we don't see that statistically right. in the data yet. Um, more of us are spending more time on our phones and I think more news is happening online. I mean, you think about like Trump and AOC, right? They're making so much news on the internet mm-hmm. that you also have to understand how that works and the dynamics of that. And like, again, make a decision on whether what of it is worth covering mm-hmm. or not. And I think, you know, you asked about my day-to-day earlier, and I I don't think I answered. Sure I th- did. You said you I, managed yeah, yeah, yeah. all the... Yeah, yeah, um, But w- one of the things that I think is the hardest part of my job is being a responsible steward of the risk and rewards of these platforms, right? Mm-hmm. Because on the one hand, I think, yes, there is a lot of... There are a lot of landmines. There are a lot of garbage signals. On the other hand... I do want to emphasize all the great value and and like potential journalism we could be doing, um, whether it's you know seeing so much search and social interest for when Nipsey Hussle died, mm-hmm. and kind of integrating that into our decision making process to say like how big should we cover this? It was one of the biggest news stories in ter- in terms of search and social traffic of 2019 so far, and I think. Like 10 years ago, would we have covered a rapper's death in that way? Um, probably not as much. Yeah, probably not as much. Is so, the newsroom open to the, the taking in these kind of signals and allow, or, or I mean, I know it's a mix, but um, I don't know, to integrate that within the news process is, um, well, it's fraught with challenges. Totally. I mean, otherwise, you'd just be doing Meghan Markle stories all day. Totally, right? All the signals say do more. Totally. Um, and I, I think that's where this tension is good, right? The tension of saying like, people are talking about this and like, this mm-hmm. is our editorial news judgment of the New York Times. There, there, you know, there's a Venn diagram there. Like, yeah. and I think that, t- I, I like tensions. Yeah. I like- You guys aren't above little Game of Thrones Yeah, content. oh my gosh, you know, we actually did have 
some of the best Game of Thrones I, I like the, I actually went over the, you know, here are the theories and stuff like this. Yeah, it was yeah, very yeah. helpful before the yeah. last episode. It's funny. We do these um, audience updates for our morning news meetings and... Every like Monday or Tuesday, we'd be like, Game of Thrones was the top story. <laughs> but you know, like we covered Grumpy Cat's death. I think there are then ways. You got the 10 month like taxi <laughs> investigation. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so, you know, like get you a man who can hey. do both or woman, get you a lady, get you a great lady, okay. <laughs> do both. Um, so, I, I think that tension is good. I think that tension pushes us to actually make a decision. Um, and I think that's something that changes over time. Like, the New York Times is however many years old. Like that, the the way we think about editorial judgment will shift as the cultural people, readers, audiences shift. So, so final thing is um, for those who are sort of early on in their careers, mm-hmm. give me give me the case for media as a career choice uh, because there's a lot of career choices out there, and there's some that are even they're they're, they're better paid. They're a little bit. Uh, more reliable than the media industry at this time. So I used to do these weekly um, coaching sessions for anyone who signed up. I had to put it on pause for a bit. But, you know, I I tell everyone I talk to that no matter how talented you are, media is fucking hard. And that's the reality. But if you love, if you love news, if you love information, if you love people, if you're curious about the world, you love reading and like finding and sharing interesting stuff. Like, what better job is there mm-hmm. than to be a journalist? Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of different forms of yes, journalism. I feel like yes. Now too. And I think, you know, it, it, w- even what we were just talking about about the role of an editor. It's not just you know you can be a journalist and not be writing stories or editing stories. There's so that that landscape is so big now. You have people in products, you have people kind of working on training, you have people doing research, you have people looking at data. There's so many kind of entry points into media that, you know, I think if you like media, let that be your kind of North Star and mm-hmm. figure figure out like what part you like. Because it's, I, I, I think it's, I mean, I don't think I know. I know it's becoming much more flexible. I was just talking to an editor at the Times who just joined our politics team. He's been at the Times for a while. And he started saying, like, but I don't have, like, traditional editing experience. And I was like, no, 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 like, you do. Like, you you come at it from X, Y, Z angle. And, like, that's just as important as being able to edit a story, right? Mm-hmm. You, you can also learn these things. I, I think it's fun. I get to read all day and, like... Whether that's our, you know, Rihanna exclusive to our New York taxi investigation, I just get to read all day and share. It's fun. It's hard. You learn a lot. Mm -hmm. It's constantly changing. It feels impactful and mission oriented. That's one of the things I'll always take away from BuzzFeed, which I call my spiritual home. It like you can have both. Oh, that's one final thing on that. Um, The stuff with like the peas and guacamole (laughs) stuff, that's done just to like piss people off on social media, right? Yes, I would say most recently. What was the most our recent Aperol one? Spritz that one. controversy. Yes. That that was really just done to piss people off. You know, we like to foster debate. And <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no, but yeah, like we can have a little fun. There was a rally in Greenpoint as um, Carrie Carrie Flynn, who is an Aperol Spritz. Um, 
influencer, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I guess it was, See, was so going to go. I saw media. it in Slack. I saw it in Slack. <laughs> she said she was going to go to. She wanted. She was um, missing it. So I mean, the New York Times caused a movement. Yeah. Okay. Movements big and small. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Millie. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Our producer is Aditi Songal. As always, please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. Leave us a comment. Leave us a review. Um, go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and do that. And I will be back next week with a new episode. <laughs> <laughs>